Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. My name is Erin Herman. I am married to Zach Herman, and we have been part of City Church for about 10 years now. Um, yeah, right? I'm excited to get into that second decade with, with some of you all, and um, we have loved being a part of this church. Um, so will you stand with me one more time as we speak the Lord's Prayer together as we enter into the sermon? This then is how you should pray. Let's pray together. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in Charlottesville as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Awesome, thank you all. Let's be seated. So all of last year, we talked about the kingdom of God. What is it? And this year, we'll talk about the kingdom of God. How do you live in it? The kingdom of God is so central to Jesus' teachings. New Testament scholars say if you miss the kingdom, you're missing what Jesus has to say altogether. So as we explore the kingdom of God as central to Jesus' teaching, we've been focusing in this year on the passage in the Gospel of Matthew known as the Sermon on the Mount. When we picture this scene, we see Jesus on a hillside talking to a large group of people. They're all from different faith backgrounds, they're all from different communities, and they're together on this hillside where Jesus is sharing the vision of a new kingdom in which he is king. As we've talked about before, this scene would have been shocking to his disciples because these people would have never associated with one another in normal life but they're coming together because there's something different about Jesus and there's something different about the message that he is sharing. Something pretty spectacular is happening. At this moment in history, as the Roman Empire is at its peak, Jesus shares this vision for a kingdom that is entirely different from what the world had to offer. God's kingdom would be centered on peace and humility rather than violence and oppression of people. There is a difference between the empires of the world and the shalom that Jesus offers. He cares about every single person sitting there around him, no matter what they look like, no matter their backgrounds, no matter the things in their life that have burdened them. He cares intimately about every single person who is made in his image. So we're now at the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus closes with four warnings. So we've talked about the first two the past couple of weeks, and this morning will be the third. It's interesting if you look at the Sermon on the Mount that there's these two sections. At the beginning, there are these set of blessings, that's called the Beatitudes, and at the end, there's these set of warnings. It's interesting because oftentimes in the literary structure of the Bible, you'll see these chiasms where um, the, the writers use this literary tool that similar ideas get repeated in reverse sequence. So it's interesting to think, okay, at the beginning, we saw these blessings. These blessings were about, you know what? The people that you think are forgotten, the people that you would consider maybe unblessed, Jesus says, those are the exact people who have a place in my kingdom. That's awesome. It's upside down. This is the upside down kingdom. 
And so these four warnings at the end similarly turn the world up on its head because they reveal things that would challenge his listeners to think about who really is finding themselves living within the kingdom principles that he laid out. So the first warning is in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, and it says this. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus says, let's be careful about which road we're on. There's a wide road and it leads to destruction. It's easy to find, it's easy to walk, you don't have to think much about it, but that road will lead to destruction. Jesus then says there's a narrow path and it's harder to find, it's gonna take a little bit more effort to find yourself on that path, but this is the path that leads to life. Zach has degrees, plural, in urban planning. Um, and so when we were first married, we were living over in the Fry Spring neighborhood. That's still where we live today. And if you've over, been over in that kind of older neighborhood, there are some winding roads. And it's a kind of like tight space that if you get behind a bicycle, you're gonna be there a while. But then when you turn to our street, it kind of opens up. And it's a classic like brick ranch um, all along both sides. You've got sidewalks. And it really opens up and it's beautiful and we loved living there. But Zach told me something really interesting that when you're planning to build streets in residential neighborhoods, that they actually plan them to be more narrow. Even though wider can seem really nice, the idea here is that there are less accidents that happen on narrow roads. Why is that? It's all about focus on a narrow road, literally, you're paying attention to where the center line is, you're paying attention to the pedestrians or the, the cyclists, you're paying attention to how fast you're driving, if there are any obstacles. On a, on a wide road, you're not thinking so much, you're kind of going on autopilot. And while Jesus didn't give us this warning in the age of automobiles, I do think it's really pertinent that as a follower of Jesus, you probably sense that there needs to be focus and attention in your life on where Jesus is and how the kingdom of God is moving. Culture has a really strong pull on us to go in a direction that isn't the same as the things of God. And so if you're feeling that, maybe it's, a, it's time to find where the narrow road is. We see the second warning in Matthew 7, 15 through 20, and this is how it starts. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus tells his followers, his listeners, that they can expect to find people, even if they're on the narrow road, whose outer appearance doesn't match their inner lives. They can look on the outside like they're part of this flock, but their hearts and their lives tell an altogether different story. It's interesting then that Jesus tells us it's more than just theological accuracy and the words coming out of someone's mouth that really show us whether they speak in line with the things of God. It can seem strange, but it's really possible for someone to intellectually understand the things of the kingdom 
but not have it reach our hearts, their hearts. Ferocious wolves is not a sweet, tender image, is it? And so that leads us to the third warning today, which will be our focus. We'll read from Matthew 7, 21 through 23, if you have your Bibles with you, and it'll be shown on screen. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. There's a lot in this warning that we're gonna unpack. I'm thankful that you guys kind of side with me there. Let me say this, I have vivid memories. I spent um, several years coming out of college in student ministry, and I have vivid memories of conversations with friends and students that come to this passage, and they have deep concern. They are genuinely worried as they interpret this that there's gonna come a day at the end of their lives where they stand face-to-face with Jesus, and he will look at them and say, I don't know you. What could be worse or have be more fearful for those who want to know God? And it's likely in this room, just at the size of the group here, that there could be people in this room that have experienced some real hurt from this passage rather than good in their lives. And so I just wanna say that when we hear warnings from Jesus, when we look at this passage in context, I believe that there is so much more hopeful and gracious and wonderful about this passage than there is to fear. When I come across passages of scripture that seem kind of in misalignment or or out of character of the God that I know, I often return to this, this image that I was taught many years ago, that sometimes when we approach God's character, we find ourselves kind of approaching it like a bag of marbles and all of the pieces of God's character are in this bag of marbles and we put our hand in the bag and we pull something out. And so the first time we pull something out, the first marble that we see is love. And we're like, yes, that's great. I got love today. I can totally vibe with love. Next day we go back to the bag and we pull out another marble and we get forgiveness. Oh, yes, forgiveness, I'm forgiven, yes. I hope I'm I'm not making light of these things. These are real. But we get to the bag the third day and we get wrath. And we think, oh, stink. Wrath. I got wrath. I don't remember what I was taught the first time about this image, but as I have reflected on it, I wanna say that God's character is more like broccoli cheddar soup. When you, thank you, when you dip a ladle into broccoli cheddar soup, what do you get back? Broccoli cheddar soup. When we engage with God's character, it's not as if we're picking one piece one day and a different the next. He's not unknown to us. Every time we approach God in scripture, he's the same God that is loving and forgiving, that loves justice, that is kind, that is patient, that sees you all and knows where you are, that sees me and knows where I am and loves us. So let's jump in with with that broccoli cheddar soup image in mind. 
Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. In the modern American church, it's common to interpret this as who or who will not be going to heaven. It sounds like a statement of our salvation, who's in, who's out. But what's key to understanding this is what it means to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is often used interchangeably with the kingdom of God. The idea of the kingdom of God, when Jesus talks about the kingdom, is that this is active and present among his listeners. It's not necessarily new when Jesus speaks about it because God's presence is there in the Old Testament. He is ruling. But when Jesus comes and he says right away, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, we can simply think of it like Jesus giving us really clear directions on what the kingdom is and how we may be part of it. If you've ever um, heard of Dallas Willard, he paraphrases this with a really simple image in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. And he says, it's like being invited to a banquet at a house you've never been to before. And you're sitting in the foyer and waiting for dinner to be served and the server walks you down a hallway and points to the living room, or the, sorry, the dining room and says, turn for the dining room is at hand. Or in more simple English, here's the dining room. Put in the most basic terms, Jesus comes into his earthly ministry and he says, here, here is God's kingdom. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it feels like. Here is who it's accessible to. Here is who is invited and here's how it's gonna work. So as he closes the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is gonna enter the kingdom. So then what's the alternative? Jesus says, it won't be all those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. This isn't all that new, right? Because if you look back at the Lord's Prayer and we go back to how he even teaches us to pray, Jesus says, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Lord, Lord, calling upon the name of the Lord. And then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it seems then that Jesus isn't so much focused on who is going to get into heaven, that part of things. He seems way more focused on us wanting the kingdom of God to come here and now, for praying for God's will to be done. Jesus says that to experience the kingdom, there's more to it than just acknowledging in our minds the right things about God, having the right beliefs, the right intellectual thoughts, there's actually this engagement with taking part in his will, being partners in his kingdom, and seeing the kingdom come to bear in our lifetime, in this city, in this space, in our relationships. When we walk through life and we so desperately want this beauty to come in, when we want the suffering to end and all things to be made new, there is more to take part in, and that is hopeful. Jesus seems to make it really clear that God doesn't ask us to to call upon his name and then wait for our lifetime to end to be actually part of it. God is more interested in telling us the kingdom is here now and your whole life can be filled with this hope and this reality. You get to play a role actively in bringing the kingdom to bear. I think we all have some sense 
um, when we're looking at this, that there's a difference between an awareness of something and actually doing the will of something. I, I really, I lie to the doctor regularly. I, well, I don't always tell the whole truth to the doctor. When they ask me, you know, my water intake, my sleep, and my exercise, because I know and I have an awareness of what I need to do, but I know that there's a difference between what I need to do and what I am actually doing. I think in this way that Jesus is warning us that to be people of God, we can't just end with the head knowledge of it. We can't just know what is happening in the kingdom of God, but Jesus says that to enter into his reign is to embrace the will of God, embracing his desires and intentions for ourselves and for our world. And so when we look at the text from this angle, it opens up another perspective altogether. Instead of just saying, am I in or am I out? I see the series of warning with comfort from God to all those same men, women, and children listening on that day. Jesus says, look at all the people of the world that have been overlooked, but absolutely have a place in the kingdom. And then on the back end of things, he says, listen, when you're standing shoulder to shoulder on this narrow road, realize that it's going to be more than just what you say about the kingdom that matters. And I wanna, I wanna show two gifts that I think are really clear from Jesus's message. First, it's a gift to know that God does not leave us alone in this world. He actually wants us to experience his grace today. In the Gospel of John, he records this, these words of Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. It's so good to know that in following God's commands, we have the person of the Holy Spirit, who is called our advocate. If you've ever interacted with the Holy Spirit in a way that you think that the Holy Spirit is just for conviction, or maybe that you think the Holy Spirit is just a person that would shame you and tell you all the things that are wrong in your life, God actually calls the Holy Spirit our advocate to help us walk in obedience, to actually know the truth and to remember it in our daily lives. So then it's not just saying, Lord, Lord, but actually allowing the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to teach us, and to remind us in our forgetful thoughts about God's goodness. Second, it's so good to know that our God knows the difference between those who just use his name but continue to do harm and those who are truly living in the kingdom. Imagine how comforting it would have been as he stands in front of people who have been forgotten by the world to be told by Jesus that God's people um, are to take it seriously how they interact with the world. I think we all know this to some degree, but there's a certain kind of hurt that happens when people with their mouths say that they speak for God, but that their actions towards others leave behind pain. God tells us in this passage that that's not something he takes lightly. And so for everyone listening on that hillside and everyone in this room who has been hurt or confused by the specific pain of people who say that they follow God yet seem to show no interest in following his will, 
we can take hope from our, this passage that our king doesn't take that lightly either. God doesn't turn a blind eye to that and he cares very much that we not only think the right things of God, but are the hands and feet of God in our world. When he speaks to the crowd, he shares a vision for forming a people who would live with integrity from the inside all the way out. God is looking for people like you and me to partner with him in this world for redemption. So, how do we put feet to our faith in a message like this? There's so much in the Sermon on the Mount that teaches us how to live differently in light of the kingdom. In one sense, this, the whole point of this exhortation by Jesus is that his people should be putting feet to their faith, right? We have learned in the Sermon on the Mount that we trust his love and compassion for us to allow um, us to live without worrying about what we'll eat and what we'll drink and the clothes on our backs. He gives us the ability to see beyond our money and our physical resources that will fade and perish and consider our eternal security instead. He asks us to follow his will for relationships with one another. There are a lot of things to do to be a part of the kingdom of God, but sitting and contemplating about how to put feet to our faith here, it struck me that I can hear this message once, I can hear these message, this message many times, and even when we're convinced that yes, God wants me to take part in his will, this is the better life, this is the narrow path, it takes me such intention to live a life of obedience on that narrow road. I walk in here on Sunday morning and I'm just so, so glad to be here. Because what happens every Sunday morning is that no matter what my week brought, I come back here and hear the good news of the kingdom of God. I'm reminded that building my own kingdom, building my own reputation, building my own career or my own family, this is not actually the ultimate thing. I feel that every week when I come back here with you all is the time where I re remember that even though in my life I have said, Lord, Lord, in my heart, for every day, for all my life, that I'm reminded here with you all what his will is, what his will is for me, what his will is for my family, my neighborhood, my city, my world. I think all of us have rhythms of our lives that either help us to know Jesus more or help us to walk farther away from Jesus. So I wonder as you put feet to your faith today, what is a rhythm of your life that reminds you what his will is, that reminds you of the shalom that he brings? A rhythm that we find in the Bible story is the Sabbath day. God gave the Sabbath command to his people as they were leaving Egypt, in a critical time as he was reshaping their identity that there is more than just the things that you're building, there is more than just the empire that you have been oppressed by. But the Sabbath day reminds them that God delights in them, that they have nothing to fear when they set their work aside for the day and return to the goodness of God. As I have grown in this practice over the past couple of years, I learn what seem like blessings and what don't. 
I learned that I want to be creative on the Sabbath. I want to take an extra nap on the Sabbath. But one thing I do is I light a candle and I place it in the middle of the coffee table all day long. And when I see it, I use it as a physical reminder of the things that the Sabbath is meant to remind me of. The story of a God who knows me from the inside out. He knows all of my worries. He knows all of the ways that the world pushes in on me to have me tell a different story. And I walk by that candle and I remember, or my mind is racing about all the things going on at work. Will my boss ever fully recognize all my skills and abilities? Will Zach and I be able to create the life that we have dreamed of? Will we hit our financial goals? Will our house look okay? And I walk by that candle and I'm reminded that the purpose that I have on earth isn't to build my own empire. It's to bear God's shalom in the world. I rush by that candle worried. I'm on my way to actually pick up that next chore. And I have the opportunity to center myself on the story that God is with me, God is for me, and I have nothing to fear. I can rest fully in him. He has offered me the narrow road. God sheds off in our rhythms when we return to him that even though the world would tell us to put ourselves first, to judge others quickly, to hold the grudge, and to get what we deserve, all of those holdups get shed away as we enter back into God's will. When we can trust that God is in charge and we can live differently because of it. So I wonder if you're here for the very same reason that you know that God is good and you want to live differently because of it. To live life saying, Lord, Lord, and then also be open to the Holy Spirit shaping your life. And if you are, I would encourage you to think this morning about what rhythms of your life remind you who God is, who you are, and how you want to live in light of it. Would you stand with me? Maybe it's the kingdom prayer saying each morning, just like Pete has mentioned before, you, your feet hit the floor and you remind yourself of God's kingdom. Maybe it's starting to form your own weekly rhythm of Sabbath. Maybe it's joining a life group where you speak in people with community about scripture and how that is playing out in your lives. Honestly, if something has come to mind as I have been speaking or as you pray or as you worship, would you take a minute before you leave here today to just write that down? A moment in your week, a rhythm to remind yourself who God is and what his will is for you and for us. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you this morning that your kingdom is wonderful, that your hope is spectacular, that you call us to say, Lord, Lord, and you also ask us to be part of your plan for the redemption of your world, to live differently because you have formed us in your image and we live in a countercultural way. Lord, let us not forget that this is all by your grace. 
You have called us your people and you have given us a new way to live. Help us to find this narrow road. Help us to say, Lord, Lord. Help us to be filled with your spirit. Help us to live more and more in alignment with the things of your kingdom. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray.